When we begin tonight in Judges chapter 15, we're continuing the story of one of the more well-known judges throughout the book of Judges, this great man, Samson. Samson, of course, was a man greatly used of God, yet somewhat problematic, because he was supposed to live his life, his entire life, in a special consecration to God. And this special consecration to God was worked out by his Nazarite vow. Yet Samson seemed to take his own consecration, his own Nazarite vow, rather lightly. And it seems from much of that, he's a man who did not fulfill the potential that God had for him in being a judge for Israel. We're going to see those themes expanded and explained more, beginning here at verse 1. After a while, in the time of the wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. We've seen from the last chapter that Samson was a man who could lose his temper and go out and kill a lot of Philistines. Well, this Philistine woman that he had fallen in love with, and yet the marriage hadn't really been arranged or established between this woman and Samson, when he came to sort of take her and live with her as a wife, he found out that her father had given her to someone else. And the answer is really lame. Did you see that in verse 2? Her father says, well, I thought that you thoroughly hated her. It's hard to know why Samson's father-in-law thought this. Um, Perhaps it was just an excuse to explain why he did what he did. Or perhaps uh, Samson's Philistine's wife poisoned her father's opinion of Samson. That's possible as well. In any regard, Samson said back to them, verse 3, he said, listen, I'm going to do something to you guys. I'm going to be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. And of course, he was going to go out and harm a bunch of Philistines. Now, what's interesting about this is that Samson was angry Uh, Samson's anger was in good measure his own fault. As we saw last time, Samson was guilty of not guarding his heart. Samson was guilty of falling in love with and marrying a woman that he really had no business falling in love with or marrying, this Philistine woman that did not please God. Samson could have looked at himself to be the one to blame, but instead he found it much easier to blame, I don't know, his, his Philistine wife, her family, whatever it was. But he was going to take it out on the Philistines. And I will say, it's true that God used Samson's ungodly anger for his own purposes. Psalm 76.10 says this, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, referring to God. Now this doesn't justify Samson's anger, but it shows the glory and the power of God in being able to use all things for his purposes. So look what happens in verses 4 and 5. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and the olive groves. Samson here seems like a great big juvenile delinquent, doesn't he? We run off doing these, these terrible things. It sounds like the cherry bomb in the mailbox kind of thing. 
Yet nevertheless, God used it for his purposes in fighting against the Philistines. And so what he did was he put a torch between the tails of two foxes that he tied together. Now, some people object. They say there's no way that Samson could have captured 300 foxes. I've never captured one fox. How could Samson capture 300 of them? Well, you should know that the word translated foxes here probably refers to a jackal. And jackals are known to run in large packs, sometimes up to 200 at a time. Secondly, understand this. There's nothing in it that says that Samson did it all by himself. And there's nothing that says that he did it all in one day. So I think we take the biblical text just as it stands. There's no reason to believe otherwise. Well, but look at the retaliation from the Philistines here in verse 6. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he's taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. I want you to notice that God was using all of this, yet it all happened at a great personal cost to Samson and to the people around him. Let me just say, if you're disobedient to God, God will still accomplish some kind of purpose in your life. He will. It's just that you and the people around you may suffer greatly because of it. How much greater to bring yourself in conformity with the will of God and see what he can do through that? I mean, haven't we spent enough time living our lives outside the will of God and seeing the trouble it gets us into. Now, inside the will of God, he can do great, great things. But notice this in verse 7. Samson cries out and he says, I'll take revenge on you and after that I'll cease. Here what we have is the bitter and common story of retaliation, trying to avenge wrongs that have been done to us. Here's the problem with retaliation is that it's a never-ending story. And the one that never wins, there's, there's a, it's a contest you can never win in the end. You, you've got to be able to say retaliation belongs to God. I'll let him settle the score. My friends, we've got to admit that much of the war, much of the disaster, much of the deep-seated hatred and pain in our world comes from this human instinct to retaliate. But you know what Jesus told us? Jesus told us not to retaliate an eye for an eye. He told us to take control of the situation by giving even more. And when we do this, we act like God. Do you understand that God did not retaliate against you and your sin immediately, right? If he did, we'd all be smoking cinders right here and now, would we not? But God has shown outstanding patience towards us, has he not? Instead, he gave his only son to die for man. No, no, it's a very bad cycle here. But look at what happens, verse 8. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter, but he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Itam. Verse 8 uses an expression of speech. He attacked them hip and thigh. That, that's this expression referring to a cruel, unsparing slaughter. Samson was like a one-man army against the Philistines. But look at him. He's living like a caveman. He had no family. He couldn't trust anybody. He lived like a fugitive, alone in a cave. Samson's willfulness and instinct to retaliate has not put him into a good place. 
Verse 9. Now the Philistines went up and encamped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We've come up to arrest Samson, to do to him as he's done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is it that you've done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I've done to them. But they said to him, We've come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, saying, No, but we will tie you up securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him up with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. So you see what happens in verse 10? The Philistines realize that they can't get Samson themselves, so what do they do? Well, they go basically terrorize a city and say, unless you guys get Samson for us, we're going to wipe you all out. And so what they did is they came, and these uh, Israelite soldiers, these soldiers from the tribe of Judah, they came and they got Samson. Just as they said, they said, we've come to arrest Samson. We've come to get him so that we won't have the fate of a massacre done to ourselves. I find this fascinating, the reaction of the people of Israel. They are acting just like oppressed people under the Philistines, where they would rather please their oppressors rather than support their deliverer. Shouldn't those men have gone out and said, Samson, help us, lead us. You know, we're out here trying to pretend like we're going to capture you, but man, we're your army. Come, we'll go back and strike the Philistines. And Samson would have said, let's get it on, man, let's do it. But Samson didn't do that. Because these men weren't of that heart whatsoever. Instead, Samson was of the mindset that he had to go and submit himself to this because he didn't want to see this, uh, this village waylaid. So, what did they say? Verse 11, do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? That was the problem, wasn't it? They did rule over them, and God wanted something different. Anyway, verse 13, they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Samson submitted to this. And it showed great faith on Samson's part. He was willing to put himself in a difficult situation and trust that God would take care of him. So what does he do? Verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and reached out his hand and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've slain a thousand men. And so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand, and they called that place Ramoth Lehi. Oh, man, wouldn't you have paid money to see this? What did he do? Verse 15, he found the fresh jawbone of a donkey. Now, by the way, note, it was a fresh jawbone of a donkey. You don't want to mess around with a stale jawbone of a donkey when you're dealing with this. Look, I got to do a little true confessions as a preacher here before you. You know, I really do love God's word. I really do love talking about it. But sometimes I'm just the lamest, dumbest guy in the pulpit ever. Really. What I have no knack for is the demonstration, the prop. There, there are preachers who use props so effectively, I marvel. I really do. I go, that is incredible. Now, I can never think of them. And this is what brings it up. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I have the jawbone of a donkey sitting in my office right now that I could show you exactly what we're talking about. And you know where it is? It's in my office right now. I can't take it out and show you, even though it's about so long and it's him. You could see, man, you could use that thing for a weapon. You really could. So just visualize, if you could, the jawbone of a donkey, which is pretty heavy. And you could see that you could use that thing like an axe, like a hatchet in somebody's hand. And you could just start wailing on people left and right and hitting them in the head and hitting them in the gut. And that's exactly what Samson did. You see, uh, uh, other judges of Israel led armies against their enemies. Samson, he fought all alone. Now, by the way, this is some of the weakness of Samson, is it not? Samson was a man who never partnered with anybody. And yet this is one of the great reasons why his potential wasn't really fulfilled. But man, verse 16, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. In the Hebrew, there's sort of a poetic touch that's difficult to render in translation. One effort goes like this. The guy says, with the jawbone of an ass, I place them in a mass. You know, it's something like that, something poetic or rhyming in the Hebrew. And he called that place Ramath Lehi. That name essentially means jawbone hill which is a really cool thing to name a place where you just killed a thousand guys with the jawbone of a donkey. But it was wonderfully appropriate of Samson's great victory. But there he is doing it, going out, lashing out against the Philistines again. Verse 18. Then he became very thirsty so that he cried out to the Lord and said, You've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called its name En-Hachor, which means, which is in Lehi to this day, and he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Samson needed that sense of thirst, I'm convinced, in verse 18. He needed it to remind him of his own weakness and frailty. Listen, after you go out and kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, you might feel that you're invulnerable, right? God didn't want Samson feeling that way. He wanted Samson to realize how weak and reliant upon him he was. So here's this great man who can kill a thousand Philistines, yet he can be set aside just by common thirst. But God provided it for him when he called out in this great example of God splitting the hollow place and bringing out the water so that he could drink and his spirit was revived. Now on into chapter 16. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. We read that. What? Are you kidding me? Nazarite vow, consecration to God, judge of Israel, man of God. What are you talking about? Well, friends, that's just exactly what it says. Now, Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. When the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, In the morning, when it's daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Now, Samson was in obvious sin here. Right? I mean, there's no question about this. If you really want to debate the matter, well, come up and talk to me afterwards, please. Samson was an obvious sin here, 
And friends, this is a clear example of how a man who is so used of God can yet sin so blatantly. Well, I believe Samson wanted to be used by God, don't you? I do. But yet he also yielded to the deceitfulness of sin. He kept the external features of the Nazarite vow, and he kept them zealously. Samson, there's your long hair of the Nazarite vow. Samson, there's you refusing to drink wine or anything that comes from the grapevine. Samson, there are you not going near dead bodies except when you're killing them. He's doing all that zealously, but at the same time, he's blatantly sinning with a prostitute. Now you look at that, and you scratch your head, and you say, Samson, how could you do that? And you look at men and women that you know, right? You know personally, you know them from a distance. Here you are. God has used you. Look at what God has done in your life. Look at what a mighty vessel you have been or could be or for the Lord. And yet you're doing this? You're sinning in this way? What's wrong with you? Samson did what nearly all of us do when we are deceived by sin. Samson put his life into categories, into compartments. And he figured... Some categories God cares about and other categories he doesn't. I'll let God be Lord over this compartment, but not over that compartment. Understanding that Jesus Christ has claim over our entire life changes that perspective. And friends, can I just lovingly exhort you and exhort myself with that same thing? Jesus Christ has all of our life, all of it. It's his purchased possession. He created you. He purchased you at the cross. He filled you with his Holy Spirit. You belong to him in all that you are. Now, therefore, when you understand the deceitfulness of sin, trying to tell you that it's okay for you to compartmentalize your life, don't believe it. Don't believe it at all. Look at it and call it for what it actually is in your life. Be man enough, be woman enough, be child of God enough to say it's sin. Even if you can't overcome it, call it for what it is. It's sin. And that can be your first step in dealing with it. Now, do you want me to really blow your mind? What happened in verse 3? Fresh from the house of the prostitute. He comes out and he takes the city gate and he incredible hulks it up on his shoulders, right? And rips it from the whole moorings or gate post or whatever it is and walks right out of the city with it. Despite his sin, God gave Samson supernatural strength to escape from the Philistines. And God did this because his purpose was bigger than Samson himself. And God used Samson despite his sin, not because of it. Listen, God God does this sometimes. Sometimes God takes very weak, sometimes compromising, sometimes weird people and uses them mightily. It's true. 
And listen, you have to just say, okay, Lord, you're doing what you're doing there. I don't understand it. I don't really get it. But that's your business, not mine. Friends, it's important for us to say that we'll separate the two things. We'll separate the fact that sometimes God can use a very strange or unworthy person and the fact that we ourselves need to live whole lives before God. So I I just want to speak directly. Look, whatever way that you may have listened to that sweet, seductive song that plays in your mind about the deceitfulness of sin, I, I pray God would give you the grace tonight to at least begin by calling it what it is. It's sin. And if you're not willing to repent of it, then be honest about it. Here's the prayer I would want you to pray. Maybe you'll come up front later on tonight and pray with somebody. I'll be very cheered just to know, not that I have to know in any individual situation, but just to know that it would happen up here this evening. If somebody would come up front and pray with somebody in the prayer team and say this, I don't want to repent, but I know that I should. Would you pray that God would make me willing? You know, isn't that what we need God to do in our hearts? If you don't really want to repent, okay, be real about it. Then come to God and say, Lord, I want to repent of that. Would you please work it in me? Well, from the frying pan to the fire, verse 4. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Samson, verse 4, he loved the woman whose name was Delilah. He fell in love again. And wonders of wonders, this woman is bad news for him as well. How unlucky can a guy be, right? No problem with Samson here, right? He's just got bad luck when it comes to women. No, of course not, right? Samson, Samson, you've got to examine your heart. You've got to guard your heart. The, the, the fact that you keep falling in love with these very bad women, it's no justification of it. It's another example of the pain and ruin and ultimate disaster that came in Samson's life because he didn't guard his heart. Because look what the lords of the Philistines did. Verse 5, they came to Delilah and said, Every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver if you'll betray him to us. Now Delilah was also deeply in love. Samson was in love. Delilah was in love. But she was in love with money. Not Samson. 1,100 shekels makes up more than 140 pounds of silver. This is a huge fortune that they're offering her. Verse 6. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound him with them. Now, men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room, and she said to him, 
The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings like a strand of yam breaks when it touches the fire. A strand of yam? Yarn. Yarn. I still got, I still got Thanksgiving on my mind. I'm saying, that makes no sense whatsoever. A strand of yam, that doesn't even make sense. Now, if you could take a strand of yam, it would burn really quick, wouldn't it? But he broke the... You, could you imagine there's people watching this streaming? There's somebody watching this on the internet going, oh, man. But he broke, broke, he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Now, look at it in verse 6. Delilah has to come to Samson and say, please tell me where your great strength lies. The source of Samson's strength was not obvious. This adds um, evidence to the idea that he probably was not a hugely muscled man. I mean, if he had these huge muscles, but well, of course he's that strong. Look at the muscles on that guy. But it wasn't immediately obvious. But Delilah says, tell me the secret of your strength. And look what this woman says in verse 6. And with what you may be bound to afflict you. Delilah knew that Samson was strong. Yet she knew that something could bind him. And this was indeed true of Samson. You know what Samson should have said? If Samson would have been truthful, this is what he would have said to Delilah. I may be bound with the attention and the affection of a woman that's uh, ungodly yet still attractive. That's what will bind me. Now that would have been the honest answer, right? Because that's what did bind Samson. You know what? Forget about the bowstrings. Forget about the yarn. Forget about the, uh, the uh, uh, hair that's going to get cut later. What really bound Samson? Samson couldn't be honest and look into his own soul and say, I may be bound with the uh, attraction and affection of an attractive yet ungodly woman. Well, that's exactly his case. Um, So she bound him. I I don't know what more evidence you need as Samson for the display of a woman's heart, right? Tell me how to trap you. Oh, okay, I'll do it. Whoops, that didn't work. Let's try it again. (laughs) Now, I know, I know. There are people who read this and they say, how could anybody be that stupid? Really, they say this. They say, how could anybody be so blinded by the attraction and the affection of, uh, of an attractive but an ungodly woman? How could anybody be so blind to that that they would do utterly foolish things with their life? Hello? It happens all the time, right? But listen, I regret Samson is dumb as a post here, right? And, and aren't a lot of people just as dumb as Samson? I, I can't defend his intelligence in the slightest way. But I can tell you that his affliction is not uncommon. Verse 10. Then the Delilah said to Samson, Look, you've mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me with what you may be bound with. So he said to her, If they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait, standing in the room. But he broke them off his arms like a thread. It would seem 
that romantic attraction made Samson lose all sense. There was no good or rational reason why Samson continued his relationship with Delilah. Why he even entertained for a moment her prying into the secret of his strength. Samson is a good example of how an ungodly relationship can warp thinking. And so they tried it again. Verse 12, he allowed this bondage to come into his life because he refused to escape the situation, right? Samson should have just walked out of that room, looked at Delilah and said, Lady, you're good looking, but man, you are bad news. I'm having nothing to do with you. But he couldn't do that. He didn't do it. Verse 13. Delilah said to Samson, Until now you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me with what you may be bound with. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of a loom. So she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep, pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times and you've not told me where your great strength lies. Friends, Delilah didn't care anything for Samson. And his continued commitment to her is a remarkable testimony to the power of blind, irresponsible love. But you notice in verse 15, she comes back and she says this statement. This is supposed to really get Samson, right? This is like the sucker punch right in the gut. How can you say, I love you when your heart is not with me? Tragically, we wish that was the case, don't we? Tragically, his heart was with Delilah. Her accusation was a manipulative projection of her own heart. Delilah's heart wasn't with Samson. His heart was entirely with her, even when it shouldn't have been. Verse 16. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death that he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I'm shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he's told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. Earlier, back in Judges 14, Samson gave in to the nagging of his first Philistine wife. Now he gives in to the nagging of Delilah. Now she sinned by using such terrible manipulation. Of course that's true. But Samson sinned by yielding to the manipulation. Oh, she complained before. Samson, your love for me is empty. But it was a hollow protest. Samson didn't love him at all. And what she wanted, she wanted Samson to destroy himself and to destroy his life with God to prove his love for her. 
You may face it. You may face a wonderful, charming, entirely lovable person who will want you very much if you'll sacrifice your relationship with God for them. That's a Delilah. Verse 17, so he told her all his heart. And what a sad scene. You know what was so sad about this? Is when Samson said it, he had to know what was going to come. Could Samson think for a moment that when he laid his head down on her knees and went to sleep, that he wouldn't wake up without every hair on his head cut? Every time he had told her the secret before lying, she did immediately did it, right? I, I got to think, Samson fell asleep with tears in his eyes. He knew what was waiting for him. The strongest man in the world was weak under the power of an ungodly relationship. Maybe Samson figured, I'm so strong in one area of my life, I can be strong in all my areas. He's desperately wrong. And the power of an ungodly relationship is going to destroy him. So she lulled him to sleep on her knees. What sweet words she sang to lull him to sleep. Her pretended love for Samson. When what she really loved was money, right? That's what it was all about for her. It's deeply, deeply troubling. Because did you see that in verse 19? Shaves his head. And then it says, Then she began to torment him. Far be it from me to say that the scriptures are wrong, but I might question that word began right there. (laughs) Didn't she begin to torment him much further, much earlier, I should say? And his strength left him, verse 19. Friends, there was nothing magical in Samson's hair. We might have also said that Samson began breaking his Nazarite vow before this. Yet there was a time when Samson had to finally reckon with the rejection of God's mercy and pay for the loss of consecration. Verse 20. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he woke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. I'll go out, I'll do what I did before. Samson didn't know things were different. He had lived in compromise for so long, he thought it would never make a difference. And friends, this is the same for all of us, isn't it? You compromise, you accommodate, you give room to sin, you compartmentalize, you do it all. And because lightning doesn't strike immediately from heaven, you say, well, it's okay. But there will be a day of reckoning. There will. There must. That's why God calls upon us today to repent. You see that in verse 20. It's so tragic. He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Do you understand? Samson's strength wasn't in his hair. It was in his relationship with God. He worked against that relationship all the way to the point where God finally departed from him in the sense that he no longer blessed Samson with supernatural strength. So verse 21, Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. However... The hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. There's Samson, blind, bound, working as the most menial slave. He's working like an ox or a donkey, pushing around, you know, a a thing to grind. That's all he's doing. He's blind and he's bound. But the mercy of God in his life, 
the hair starting to grow again. Again, nothing magical in the hair. We understand that, do we not? But as the hair is growing on the head, the work of God is growing in his heart, is it not? You know, you know what we should just thank God for sometimes? Is that our enemies, spiritually and often otherwise, they're stupid. They are. I mean, I don't want to say that the devil is stupid and, and all of that, but listen, sometimes the devil does really stupid stuff. How stupid of the Philistines to not shave that man's head every day, right? How stupid to make it part of the evening. Here's your food. Here's the razor, right? How stupid is that? They let his hair grow back. Listen, we can praise God for that sometimes, right? I mean, I know sometimes Satan can be clever and our spiritual, all that. I know. But sometimes they're just that dumb. And God uses it. Verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. And they said, our God has delivered into our hands Samson our enemy. When the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has delivered into our hand our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. So it happened that when their hearts were merry, they said, call for Samson, that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he performed for them. And they stationed him between the pillars. You know, I can just imagine Samson pursuing his ungodly relationship with his first Philistine wife and then with Delilah. And Samson thinking this, okay, look, I know this is bad, but I'm only hurting myself. Yeah, bad, but I'm only hurting myself. No, my friend, Samson, you're not only hurting yourself. First of all, you're robbing Israel of all the potential deliverance that you could win on their behalf. You're robbing the whole nation. But more than anything, you're sinning against your God. And you're giving every enemy of the true God in heaven reason to rejoice. Samson, you're going to play like a monkey in front of a room full of Philistines. And they're going to praise their God, Dagon, right in your face. Saying that their God was mightier than you. Samson, Dagon isn't mightier than you. But your flesh was mightier. The next time... The devil whispers that into your ear. Rebuke him in the name of Jesus with all of your strength. The next time he says, you're only hurting yourself, scream out, liar. Look, can I say, it should be enough that you're hurting yourself. But it's much deeper than that. Verse 26. Then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. Then Samson called to the Lord saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray. Just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines from my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right and the other on his left. Then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the Lord's and on all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. And his brothers and his father's household came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel 20 years. 
They continued their mockery of Samson in the temple of Dagon. They used a little boy to lead him, right? You get the symbolism there. Samson is so defeated, he's so cowed, that a little boy can be his guardian. But then Samson says, no, God, please restore my strength so that with one blow I can take vengeance on the Philistines. That's verse 28. Samson's end was both bitter and sweet. Samson, hold on to your seats for this. Samson, for the first time in the book of Judges, for the first time in four chapters, we see Samson praying. Never see it before this. And his first prayer is his last prayer. He achieved his greatest victory against the Philistines, but at the cost of his own life. In this, Samson is a picture of the believer in disobedience. God uses him, but he didn't benefit from it. It ended in personal tragedy, shadowed by the waste of all of his great potential. So he cries out in verse 30, let me die with the Philistines. And friends, it was suicide, but it was a different kind of suicide. And that his purpose wasn't really to kill himself. His purpose was to kill as many Philistines as he could. Make no mistake about it, Samson was a hero. He's even mentioned among the heroes in faith in Hebrews 11. Verse 32, if you're interested. Yet there's no glorification of Samson at the end. He is not a glorious hero to be emulated. Instead, Samson was a tragic hero. His life should have ended much differently. You can say that Samson's work here was suicide. Suicide, my friends, it's clearly a sin. It's the sin of self-murder. Yet people are wrong if they regard suicide as the unforgivable sin. Most people who commit suicide have given in to the lies and the deceptions of Satan, whose purpose is to kill and to destroy. We pray that God would grant mercy and, and light to people who are tormented by such thoughts. Show them the goodness of his grace. But at the end of it, for Samson, at verse 30, he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell in on all the lords and the people who were in it. Friends, that could only happen with God supernaturally empowering Samson. And it shows that God never forsook Samson even when he was disobedient. God's mercies were there for Samson even when he was in a Philistine prison. All Samson had to do was turn his heart back to God and receive them. Listen, this is God's call out to you, out to me here this evening. Let's just say, and I, I look, please, I'm not trying to shovel the guilt or the condemnation upon anybody here this evening. But how could I not make this point? If you are a disobedient believer here tonight, God has not forsaken you. But God longs for your repentance. And he longs for you to repent before you destroy yourself. God loves you. He loves what he can do for you. He wants you to be free from the deception that thinks that your sin doesn't matter. It's only hurting yourself. You can compartmentalize, blah, 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 whatever it is. You see, Samson had to be deceived to keep going back to tempting and dangerous places. 
Every time he went to the sand of the Philistines, it seems that he fell into compromise. Instead, he should have done what the Bible says. Flee youthful lusts, just like Joseph did. Samson also shows us what a powerful thing wasted potential is. Samson could have been and should have been one of the greatest men of God in the Old Testament. But he wasted his potential. Think about the potential that God has in this room right here. Wow. Each one of us coming as clean vessels, men and women before the Lord, we can fulfill the calling God has on our life. Amen. That's unstoppable. I rejoice when I see it. I want to see it in my life. I know you want to see it in yours. Let's get, let God deal deeply with us. Um, some of you are convicted of sin by thinking about the life of Samson. Good. There's cleansing for your sin. Repent and believe. Here are the elements of communion. Look to who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. That's how you are forgiven. Do you understand you're not even forgiven by your own repentance? Your repentance just enables you to receive the forgiveness that Jesus purchased for you on the cross. So come, receive, be cleansed, and um, let the prayer team do its work among us here tonight too. Father, that's what we want to ask. We don't want to be Samsons of people. We don't want to be a Samson of a congregation, Lord. Great potential, but not fulfilling it, Lord. Well, Lord, I don't think that's been true of the past of this congregation. I pray that it would not be true of the present, and it will not be true of the future. Help us, Lord. Pour out your grace. Pour out your spirit upon us. Here we are, Lord. I pray especially, Lord, there may be a few people here, Lord. There may be a few people who are truly blinded by sinful compromise. Lord, they can't even see it clearly. To to put it, Lord, they're just as stupid as Samson was in the midst of his cloud of sinful deception. Lord, won't you shine your light through the fog of sinful deception in their minds and help them to see, help them to repent, help them to walk in true fullness of life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.